Welcome back to our, our series that we're calling The Story of God. And uh, we're really excited about this. We're doing something we don't usually do. Usually, um, if you've been with us for any amount of time, uh, we teach through the Bible verse by verse. We take a book, Philippians, Daniel, you name it, and we teach verse by verse. We feel it's the best, most systematic way to get God's truths across. But occasionally, we take a topic and um, we exegete it. We pull from that topic the truths about God. And this topic is a big topic, as we're going to talk about from Genesis to Revelation, the scarlet thread, Jesus woven in throughout the story of God. Because God's story was not meant to parcel out in silos. It was meant to be read as a whole story. So welcome back. Um, what a journey we have been on. We started with God creating his kingdom creating everything that's uh, around us. The Bible says the Lord is his and everything in it. And then he creates us, not just fish and animals and sky and land, but he creates us and he does it in his image. And everything is going great until, until his kingdom is, is broken by disobedience, broken by sin. But God doesn't give up on us. Last, last week, we, we saw God start to build towards the expected kingdom of Jesus, and he does this by establishing a covenant of blessing with Abraham. And then we, we finished on a high note. The children of Israel are flourishing and Joseph and his, for the first time, Joseph and his brothers, they're, they're getting along. So Genesis ends with God's people in a, in a foreign land getting blessed just like God had promised Abraham. But the book of Exodus opens 400 years later and the tables have, have turned. The promise that God made to his people appears to be in trouble. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph are long dead, and it doesn't look good. There's a new Pharaoh on the scene, and he, he is afraid of the Israelites because they're growing and flourishing, and he gets a little nervous about this people group living in his country, and so um, he enslaves them. And this morning, we're introduced to a new character, you might want to write this down, named Moses. And Moses is cast as the new Noah. That is, as an infant, he is rescued through the waters in a miniature ark like Noah, grows up as Egyptian royalty. And then as an adult, he tries to rescue his people all on his own. He lashes out in anger. He kills an Egyptian, makes Pharaoh really mad, and Pharaoh wants to kill him, so he flees. And while in exile, he meets most scholars would say this, Jesus in a burning bush on a mountain. And God tells Moses that he will rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. That he's going to send Moses to accomplish the task. And Moses, literally, he's called the deliverer. He's supposed to deliver his people from slavery. But not once, not twice, but five times God tells him to do it. And he says, no, 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 I can't. I stutter, I, 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 I've got low self, I can't do this. And it's the first time we see in our story God get upset. So finally God says, oh, okay, um, well, there'll be co-directional leadership. It'll be you and your brother Aaron. I'll give Aaron the priestly role and both of you are to go back to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. So Moses and Aaron appear before Pharaoh to ask him to let the people go into the wilderness and worship. Pharaoh refuses, and his heart is hard. And even after he sees Yahweh's power, <clears throat> time and time again, he says no. So God adds to the hardening of, of Pharaoh's heart in order to make him an object lesson for the world. 
God then proceeds to make a mockery of Pharaoh and all the Egyptian pantheon of gods by sending a series of plagues, 10 plagues. Pharaoh, as the son of Ra, the sun god, is in charge of maintaining order in the Egyptian world, and God just wrecks it. The 10 plagues linked back to the 10, and God said statements in Genesis chapter 1 and act as a reversal of those statements. God is decreating the Egyptian cosmos in order to make a new cosmos through Israel. Just as the world began in darkness, so God plunges Egypt back into darkness. And just as God protected Noah through the destruction of the flood, he now acts as a protector to his people, Israel. He gives them a sign of the Passover meal and the blood of the lamb. And the word Passover means to protect and to spare from harm. Everyone who puts the sign of the blood of the lamb on their doorpost will be spared from the last and final plague. The death angel will pass over their doors. It's the death of all the firstborns. The New Testament says that Jesus is our Passover protection lamb. And all who put trust in Jesus will be passed over from eternal death and be given eternal life. Finally, after Egypt is destroyed and Pharaoh's own son is killed, Pharaoh has had enough, at least temporarily. So he sends the people of Israel out of the land. Next, God sets a trap for Pharaoh, causing Pharaoh to change his mind and lead his army to try and stop the Israelites. And they catch up. They catch up to God's people at the Red Sea. Now you'd think, right? You'd think that um, all these miracles might fill the children of Israel with faith. You'd think by now they would be convinced of God's sufficiency that nothing could cause them to stumble. Not quite. Do me a favor, please turn in your Bibles and Bible devices to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. If you want my notes, it's in the Bible app. So Pharaoh changes his mind and he leads his chariots and his armies to recapture Israel. And and God is leading the people, but he he leads them to what looks like a dead end. There's the Red Sea on this side, and there's Pharaoh on the other. And um, for you old-timers in here, it reminds me of, um, of that song from the 70s. You know how it goes. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle, stuck in the middle with you, right? Here's the children of Israel's version. Pharaoh to the left of us, the Red Sea to the right. Here we are, God, stuck in the middle with Moses. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. Um, And and there were the Egyptians marching after them. You can picture the scene. And they were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out out of Egypt? Now, not a real vote of confidence for the leader, was it? We're stuck in the middle with Moses. But God isn't worried. He he never is. God says to Moses in verse 16, raise your staff and I'll I'll part the water. Send the people through in safety. And Moses does, and you know the story. If you want a visual picture, think Cecil um, B. DeMille's Ten Commandments and Charlton Heston as Moses leading his people through the water. Right, and you know right now in heaven, Moses is looking down, he's going, nailed it. That's me, that's me right there. And uh, his... 
his wife kind of saddles alongside of him and says, well, I don't, I don't know about, I'm not sure. And then Peter comes from the New Testament section of, the, of heaven. You say, is there a New Testament? No, I just made that up. But Peter comes from the New Testament section, always sticking his foot in his mouth, and he goes, hey, who's that? And Moses goes, that's me. And, and Peter goes, yeah, no, no, that's not you, buddy. You don't, you've never looked that good. And the Israelites, they cross over in safety and Pharaoh's armies are drowned and the people rejoice and, and they give um, all the glory to God and they break into spontaneous song. By the way, there's a New Testament parallel to spontaneous song. It's called Ephesians 5 that when we live and walk by the power of the Holy Spirit, you know what happens? The Bible says we break into spontaneous song. You're like, I thought that's just something worship leaders wanted us to do so that we'd sing louder. No, that's when we, are, when we are radically impacted by the God of the universe and the spirit of God lives inside of us, there's times we just go, I, I gotta sing. And this is what happens. Exodus 15, verse one, then Moses and the Israelites, they sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Verse five, the deep waters have covered them. They sank um, I love this, to the depths like a stone. Now, not real, really touchy-feely, but the point is taken, right? It's all about God. It's all about God. Now, before I move on, because we tend to move on when we get to this section, right? We, we see this from the 10 plagues to the parting and then crossing of the Red Sea, and we just go, whoa, it's just... That's a God of a different era. That's a God for somebody. That's not a God for me. But I want to ask us a question, and I want you to see this question. Is there any area in our life where we need the supernatural deliverer, God, the supernatural deliverer to help us? Maybe there's a sin or, or a temptation we've been struggling with, and it feels like it's, it's got us beat, and we do not know how to get free. Maybe you're in your marriage right now and you're like, I, I, didn't, I didn't see it. I didn't see it coming. I thought I would get married and be happy forever and right now our marriage is struggling. Like Lee, sometimes I'll go back and I'll, I'll look at our marriage pictures and I'll go, I remember, I want to get back to that. And the world, the flesh, and the devil have beat you up. Maybe it is a private addiction. Maybe it's a rebellious child. And you're like, God of the super, will you deliver me? Can you deliver me? Maybe like the Israelites, you're just beaten down and, and discouraged. So here's what I want you to do. I wanna ask you to close your eyes right now and spend a moment talking to this awesome, miraculous God who delivers. Just do it. Just a moment of silence. Maybe you're just saying, God, save my child. God, save my marriage. Just. By the way, I do this all the time. Ruth will tell you. I hold God to his word. I hold God to his stories. I do it all the time. 
God, you said you, I'm, I'm claiming that. You said you did this. You, you said it, God. I didn't make it up. One of the great reasons why the book of Exodus was written was to let us know that God is still in the miracle and deliverance business. Not the only reason, but one of the reasons. Okay, let's keep moving. We have a lot of ground to cover. Our, our goal this morning is to travel with uh, the people of Israel towards the promised land, which means we have to get into some geography. I'm going to put a map up there behind me. Um, it looks a little busy. I'll try my best to explain it. The people of Israel are in, over there to the left, you can see it in Egypt, and they're heading over to the right, way up to the right, which is called Canaan, or the promised land. So it looks like it's going to be an easy trip from Egypt to the promised land. The only bad thing is they do have to go through the Sinai Peninsula, which is not pleasant. Um, the Sinai Peninsula is about 200 miles from where they lived in Egypt to where they're going to go in Canaan. And, and they all know the route. They all know the route, right? It's, it's right up there by the Mediterranean Sea. That's, that's the easiest, quickest I won't say easiest, but most direct route. It's called the, the way of the Philistines. Uh, Isaiah later will say the way of the sea. And everyone knows that's, that's where you go, right? It's an international trade route. And it was a scenic route, as you can see, because it went right along the Mediterranean Sea. And they all knew that's the way we need to go. We'll take that route, um, we'll get some seafood, we'll rent some jet skis, maybe do a little parasailing, it'll be great. We'll just, boom, 200 miles, that's not very long, right? We can do 10 to 15 miles a day. We, we going home. We're gonna get in the promised land. And then God surprises them, why? Because he knows, just like he knows our hearts, he surprises them, Exodus chapter 13 and verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country. That's the road, the way of the Philistines. Though it was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert toward the Red Sea. And this road, because it was well-traveled, was very strategic in it was heavily fortified. And God knew the hearts of his people. He knew they were frightened. He knew they didn't have much faith. He knew, he knew that if they came up against an enemy, they would turn back and go be slaves again. There was another road that went almost directly south. And when God led the people across the, the Red Sea, and I want you to see this road if we can get it up there. He, he led them on this road not up across the Mediterranean Sea, but he took them south, down towards Mount, Mount Sinai. And they camped out down there in Mount Sinai, anxious to get to the Promised Land, but God had some things to teach them. So they're down there wanting to, to go on this trip, and they're down there for about a year, and finally it's time to, to break camp, and then a pillar of cloud and fire is going to lead them, think GPS, and they're, they're gonna go again, um, back up to the promised land. And there's a road that went directly up to the promised land called the Mount Sierra Road. And we know about how long it took to go from Mount Sinai up to the promised land, um, up to Kadesh Barnea, because it tells us in Deuteronomy chapter one in verse two, it takes 11 days to go from Horeb, Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Sierra Road. Now this is an 11 day trip. 
So they have to spend a whole year down at Mount Sinai. It's time to leave. They're excited about this because it's an 11-day trip. Um, but you know how long it, it took them to get to the promised land? It, it took them 39 years plus one. It took them 40 years. It took them 40 years to go 11 days. You, you might want to write this down. I didn't put it on, on the screen. Disobedience will mess with our plans. Now, now, now please, please hear this. God will restore and forgive. He's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess. But there are consequences to our choices. There are consequences when we disobey. So this morning, you and I are gonna go on this journey with the children of Israel, and we're gonna learn some life lessons from the wilderness. And our first lesson this morning as we contemplate spending 40 years in the desert is this. It's a lesson on grumbling and provision. So we, we looked at Exodus 15, and the Israelites have just been delivered from Pharaoh and his army. They've crossed the Red Sea. God has given them miraculous redemption. They sing a song about his deliverance, and then here's what happens. Notice um, how long all this rejoicing lasts. Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur for three days. They traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. This, this is why, um, that is why the place is called Marah. So they, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are, we, what are we to drink? Now, wouldn't you think that since God had just delivered them from Egypt, from slavery, performed the 10 plagues, drowned Pharaoh and his army, that their faith might be at an all-time high? But no, 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 three days. Three days, God is at the wheel and the kids are in the back going, when are we gonna get there? The kids are whining in the back, three days. But, and I want you to see this theme. We often have a narrative about the, the, the God of the Old Testament, which by the way is the God of the New Testament that he is harsh and mean and judgmental and temperamental and quick to be angry, and it's quite the opposite. If you actually read the Bible, I'm not, I'm not mocking, I'm not. It's really important to read the Bible. You see, time and time again, God's created people rise up in rebellion and God patiently working with them. Here's what he does. Here's what he does, this is, this is really good, right? God provides. He tells Moses in verse 25 of Exodus 15 to throw a piece of wood in the water and he does it and it purifies the water. So now they have their freedom. They have God's supernatural guidance. They have pre fresh, pure water to drink. Now you, do you think they'll be faithful and content? Exodus chapter 16, verse one. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day. So they've gone three days and complained. Now they've gone 15 days. The second month after they'd come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole, get this, this is millions of people. The whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Um, and, and Jim and I thought COVID was tough, right? These poor guys, these poor guys. 
And the Israelites said to them, 15 days in, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat. Now this is kind of weird, but I guess if you're on a keto diet, it's a dream come true. And we ate all the food that we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Notice verse 3. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Hey, by the way, and you can shout this out. Does anybody remember their occupation in Egypt? Doctors, lawyers, architects, business, no, no, slaves. Low slave, medium slave, high slave, slave, always slave. Slave for hundreds of years. How quickly they forgot that their lives consisted of abuse, physical and emotional, with no hopes of being anything but a slave. But you know, one of the things that discontent does it plays with our minds and it distorts our perspective. Let me say that again. One of the things that discontent does, it plays with our mind and it distorts our perspective. So what do we do? We exaggerate how bad our condition is and we have revisionist history at how things used to be or how things are for somebody else. Let's read verse six. See if you can pick up on the key word in this text. It's, it's the key theme of, of Exodus and Numbers. Exodus chapter 16 and verse six. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. In the morning you'll see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against God. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling. What's the key word? Grumbling. And if we're honest, especially as first world Americans, by and large, not every first world American, but most of us in this room and watching online, if we're honest, there's a silence, there's a weirdness right now because we love to grumble. If there were a grumbling competition, we'd enter. I'd enter. We love to grumble. It's the respectable and acceptable Sin. Several times it says that the Lord has heard their grumbling. God hears it and we expect God to get upset, but hold on. So we have to read the Bible. He doesn't, not yet. He just keeps providing. Verse 13, that evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was, but Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. And the name, this name becomes kind of an inside joke for for the Israelites, because in Hebrew, manna simply means, what is it? That's what manna means, because they don't know um, what it was. When I was in college, our cafeteria served a lot of, what is it? Not, not manna, but what, what is this I'm eating? That's another story. Verse 14 says that when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost appeared, like frosted flakes. That's where they're first introduced. But I don't think the children of Israel were saying, they're great. No, they weren't saying that. Now, there's an important rule about um, an important principle about gathering the gathering of manna that we have to look at. 
Because God is trying to, to teach them. God is trying to teach us something. Verse 17, Exodus chapter 16, the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little, and when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little didn't have too little. That's a miracle. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, this is really important, um, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and it began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Now here's the man of principle. The man of principle is this, and I want you to see it behind me. One day at a time. One day at a time. God will provide for us one day at a time. Trust God for this day right now. And some people got anxious right? When the pandemic first hit, I told you about my story of going to Walmart and fighting old ladies over the last ramen. Seriously, it, we want to hoard. I trust you, God, when I have plenty, but if I don't have plenty, I don't trust you, God. So is that really trust? Some people got greedy. Some people got afraid. Some people thought they'd beat the system, but God had something very important to teach them, and, and it's the manner principle by which you and I are to live. So God says this, and again, I want us to see this. He says, I want you to live your life trusting me one day at a time. Just this day, just learn to trust me for this day. Um, I, I really will take care of you. When, when I was younger and I heard things like that, I always thought to myself, I don't want one day. I got a plan. I want months. I want years. I want decades. But as you get older, you learn to go, whew, that was a good day. <laughs> amen. Can I get an amen? Anyone over 50? You're like, hey, whoo, that was a good, that was a good hour. I'll take that hour. God likes that. Now, guess what? Jesus echoes this same principle in his teaching. Remember the prayer that he taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 6 to pray? He taught them to ask for what kind of bread? And you're like, well, uh, pumpernickel? Oh, Jewish rye bread. Jewish, yeah, yeah. Um, pita. No, no, Jesus said this, give us, this is the kind of bread, give us this day our what? That's manna. That's manna. I have trouble with this principle. The manna principle convicts me because I, I do what the Israelites did. I worry and, and I grumble. And what's more embarrassing for me is usually when I, I do grumble and worry, it's not about things that touch eternity. It's not about concern for other people. It's about me. It's about my plans, my goals, my agenda, my comfort. I, I worry about how something is going to benefit me or I worry about what someone else is thinking about me, 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 me. I, I just get preoccupied with me. And I bet I'm not the only one, right? Um, anybody else in here worry besides me? You don't have to raise your hand. Just internalize that. So here's our challenge, yours and mine. Here's what I want you to do this week. Maybe do it for a lifetime. I want us to learn to live according to the manner principle. So I want to encourage you as I encourage myself to write down the word manna every time we start to worry or grumble. Maybe just write it down in your Bible right? Do this. Write it down in your best penmanship. Take a picture of it and use it as a screensaver for your phone. You go to pick up your phone, you see one day at a time. Manna. 
Put it on the mirror in your bathroom, at your desk, on the refrigerator. Whatever place you look most often, just remember, every time you see it, God, one, one day at a time. And that's what God is trying to teach his children in, in the wilderness. But they're slow learners. And in Exodus 17, the people are thirsty again. You'd think by now they'd have some faith or be willing to wait um, for God. Or at the very least, which we never see, pray. They don't do that. Verse 3, but the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt um, to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? And this becomes the pattern of the children of Israel. They trust, they don't trust. They trust, they don't trust. And this brings us to our, our second life lesson this morning. Life will always have obstacles. Life will always have obstacles. In Numbers 13, the children of Israel, they arrive at a place called Kadesh Barnea. Now, just so you know, they're still barely outside of their first year in the desert. And they're starting to march, just remember that map we saw, up Mount Sierra Road, and they march up to the boundary line, right, of the Promised Land. They're right there at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And there Moses sends out 12 spies. And so they're real close to being able to go over now. Even all their grumbling, their lack of faith, their anger, things we didn't cover because we didn't have time, horrible things they did in the first part of, of this story that we've looked at. God is like, I'll bring you right up to the promised land. And if you obey me, if you trust me, I'm gonna let you go in. So Moses, good leader, good general, so to speak, he sends 12 spies, one from each family, and, and uh, 10 of the spies go in. And they're like, whew. They come back with, with a, a report, and they're like, no way. There's, just, there's no way, they're giants in the land. Hey, there's Nephilim in the land, right? We're, we're literally, they said, we're like bugs. We're like grasshoppers. And two come back, Joshua and Caleb. And they give their report. And they're like, oh, were there giants? I, I guess, I don't know. God said, take the land. We're, we're going with God. We're trusting God on this. Let's take the land. Let's go. With God's help, the land is for our taking. And the people side with the 10 and not the two. By the way, you've heard me say this before. The majority isn't always right. Often the majority is very wrong. Look throughout history. What tends to happen with majority is mob rule. Everyone gets going, a pack of opinions and people get going. And next thing you know, woohoo, I'm with the majority. And you're like, uh, history proves that the majority didn't turn out so well. The people side with the ten and not the two. So God says this, okay, you don't have to go. You get your wish. You can stay here in the desert, but the next generation will be able to see themselves as something more than grasshoppers. I'll send them. You must stay here. So God has given them their desires. God will do that. I'm always amazed at people, right? They're so mad. God, give me my freedom. And then God gives them their freedom. They do something stupid. God, why didn't you make me? I'm like, what, how do you, what do you want? I just want to blame God. Okay, I get it. 
So God gives them their wish and he makes it a commandment. Now you must stay. But God doesn't desert his people. He forgives them and he stays with them. He keeps watch over them. He keeps the manna supply coming. But they never know what might have been. The adventure of what it could have been to enter the promised land of God, they just never knew. Do me a favor, write this down, last phrase. I'll put it on the board screen for you. Life is always, always, always a Kadesh Barnea. That is, there will always be giants in our path. The question is this, will we trust God in that difficult situation or will we shrink back and say it's just too difficult or too hard so I think I'll just stay in a safe, comfortable place. Maybe right now you are standing at a Kadesh Barnea and God is calling you to step out in faith, to trust him like you've never trusted him before or to trust him like you used to trust him. And you're this close to something extraordinarily special. And God is like, come on. But you look in the mirror, the world, the flesh, and the devil, generational sin, a pandemic, I don't know, has caused you to look in the mirror and all you see is a grasshopper. I'm inadequate. I'm not competent. I'm not strong enough. You're not. And neither am, am I on our own. But if God is with us, who can be against us? The question isn't whether we're adequate or competent or strong enough. The question is just, just this. Are we willing to trust God for one day at a time? So, we come to the end of Deuteronomy and the children of Israel are still wandering, but the, that whole generation dies off. A new generation has risen up, except for faithful Joshua and Caleb and their families. And as they prepare to cross over into the promised land, Moses is handing off the leadership baton to Joshua. But Moses says, hey, I got one more Sam Pittman in me. I got one more speech, right? I got one more speech in me. Gather around, kids. Here it is. And Moses challenges them with this speech. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 15. He says, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering into possess. But... If your, heart's, if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You'll not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. Choose life. You know it. I know it. How many times do we have an opportunity before us and we're like, I don't need to say this. I don't need to do this. I don't need to act this way. I need to choose life. He says, choose life. Choose life. So that you and your children may live. Generational blessing is at stake here. 
that you and your children may live and that you may, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life and he'll give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Next week, Jim will, you don't want to miss this, it's going to be so good. He's going to come back and, and let us know if they obeyed these words of Moses. He's going to let us know if they, if they chose life. Okay, before we conclude, I know that some of you are thinking, Lee, wait a second. Um, you didn't talk about the law, right? Isn't the law talked about in this section of God's story? It is. And I haven't talked about the law because I wanted to save the best for last. And you say, wait a second, the law is the, the best? No, not necessarily. The law's good, but it's not the best. But our inability to keep the law points us to the best person ever, Jesus. So l- let me finish with, a, I think it's a phenomenal Bible Project video. Check this out. You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now, the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder... Am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of the law? Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family, who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, No, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention, because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Don't worship other gods, don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws, and then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion, and you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land. They break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. 
For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's Spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem, and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there, to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others, and he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy, and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's Spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets, or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. At this time, can I have the people who are on the prayer team come up and spread out across the room? We haven't done this, um, but we're going to start to do this now. As, as you listen or you watch each one of these talks, I want, I want you to ask yourself, where am I at in the story? Because it's a, it's a love story. It's a love story. Where am I at in this story? Maybe for some of you, you saw that video and there was a part of you that went, man, I, th- I thought the gospel, I thought salvation was a- about doing, was about keeping God's law, doing good works. And maybe for the first time you're like, I, I have not looked at myself in the story in a right way. You see, what the law of God does is it challenges us. It does reveal our sinful hearts, but more than that, it reveals that we, we, can't, we can't get salvation on our own. 
The gospel isn't about what I do. The gospel is about Jesus. So ask yourself, where am I at in God's story? Have I somehow been sucked into this narrative that says salvation is, is wrapped around politics or around good works or about going to church? Or Salvation comes through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. There is no other way. He's it. So if there's one thing in this talk and in this series that I want you to walk away with is that it's about Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation. So maybe this morning for the first time you're coming face to face with the gospel. Like really, the gospel. And you're coming face to face with your own sinfulness. And you can't achieve it on your own. So if you're here this morning or you're watching online, I'm going to challenge you to ask yourself, where am I at in this story? And I'm going to challenge you to evaluate your life in light of Jesus, nobody else but Jesus. So when Jesus says, I am the only way and I'm the only truth and the only life and nobody comes to the Father unless they come through me, where are you at with that? Our world has gotten pretty funky, pretty bad. And what tends to happen when things get really bad is we just settle. Like, hey, whew, I'll, I'll take anything. There's only one thing. It's Jesus. If you've not come face to face with Jesus, if you've not asked Jesus to be Savior and Lord and leader of your life, and Jesus alone, if you've not turned from your sin that has separated you from God, which the law points out, then you don't know him. There's no other way to get there. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you didn't give up on us. We're grumblers. We are. We're no better than the children of Israel. Time and time again, you provide for us. You miraculously give to us from your salvation to your provision. We can go on and on. And time and time again, we start to grumble and say, God, where are you? Or we get angry. Or we, we, like the children of Israel, we turn to other gods, other things. Forgive us, God. And I pray this morning that as we walk away from this part of the story that all the more we realize we can't save ourselves. There's nothing we can do except fall on our knees and ask for mercy from Jesus. Father God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for, for some in this room, for those watching online, that they would come for the first time and realize they need Jesus. And God, I pray that today would be the day for many believers in this room of repentance, that they would turn their hearts back to you. They wouldn't look at themselves as grasshoppers, but as sons and daughters of a supernatural God who delivers. Change us, Father, I pray. 
Bring revival to our land, God. Bring revival to our land. Do it through us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.